In July 2015, an article in The New Yorker went viral. This article wasn't about an email scandal involving a presidential candidate or the racial tension that continues to be deeply embedded in American cities. Instead, it was about trees. That's right, trees. The article highlighted a study by a team of international researchers that looked at the correlation between green space and health indicators, including heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and even mental health. The study compared two large data sets from the city of Toronto. The first data set looked at the fine grain detail of each city block, including the distribution of green space. The second data set looked at measures of health pulled from a survey of 94,000 respondents. After controlling for factors such as income, education, and age, the researchers came to an astonishing conclusion. An additional 10 trees on a given block corresponded to the equivalent of each household in that neighborhood getting a cash windfall of 10 grand or making people seven years younger. What does this mean? Why did this article about trees go viral? I'm Jennifer Kiesmat and this is Invisible City. On today's episode, we look at the important relationship between green space and the health of residents in our urban areas. So I want to begin with a question, and it's this. Do you think when you're around trees that you are inspired to exercise more? Do you feel healthier, more invigorated and youthful when surrounded by nature? This may sound like a stretch, but these are real questions, an important field of academic exploration. This may also sound like a privileged question, a question for a culture of abundance, but I really don't think so. There is a lot to unpack in this idea. It is widely understood that urban green spaces have a natural ability to filter pollution from the air and reduce local air and ground temperature. Trees, parquets, green roofs, and large natural spaces are critical to mitigating premature deaths associated with air pollution and extreme heat waves. Urban green spaces should be seen as an essential part of urban infrastructure, not as a nice to have, not as simply a luxury. But in reality, there continues to be significant challenges in understanding and quantifying the socioeconomic and public health benefits that urban green space provides. It demonstrated that the health benefits created by trees are almost entirely exclusive to trees planted along streets and in front yards where many people can walk past them. Green space provided by backyards and parks did not exhibit the same broad public health impact. There are a few hypotheses that attempt to explain this phenomena. Some believe that roadside trees have a bigger impact on air quality along sidewalks, or those trees with leafy boulevards are more inviting for people to walk down. But others believe that even looking at a tree, just looking at it, can provide difficult to measure and hard to prove 
tangible health benefits. For example, there are numerous studies that show hospital patients who stay in rooms with a view of nature are more likely to be discharged earlier than counterparts whose windows faced a brick wall. My name's Jeff Cape, and I am the CEO at Evergreen. That's Jeff. Jeff has dedicated his professional life to understanding this relationship between people and parks. My work at Evergreen involves uh, leading a, an increasingly large team. We're probably upwards of 200 staff now uh, working across the country, but particularly focused here in Toronto on the design and development of public spaces, uh, green spaces, and has really been our focus, the ecological restoration of green spaces and involving community members in that process. Green space has a massive impact on our physical and psychological health. So interaction with nature does lead to healthier citizens in a city. Um, our work on school grounds has been has, has proven on a number of studies that the interaction with natural spaces on school ground, as opposed to these kind of prison-like environments of asphalt and chain-link fence, uh, create a much healthier dynamic among children with regards to how they play, how they learn, uh, and how they interact as, as, as sort of social creatures in, in a playground space setting. So the importance of green space in a city uh, is to create a healthy social dynamic, uh, but it also has a massive impact on the functioning ecosystem of his city. So the health of a city in its in its um, contribution to or or relationship with the natural environment on a global level is, is fundamentally important as well. Now, some of you may also be familiar with Dr. Mike Evans, who produced the YouTube video, 23 and a Half Hours. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Evans, and welcome to this visual lecture I'm calling 23 and a Half Hours. He argues that obesity is to our generation what smoking was to our parents' generation. His central thesis is this. We've designed activity out of our daily lives, and as a result, we embrace complicated solutions like open heart surgery to address diseases that have become killers. So I have a big interest in preventive medicine, you know, which can mean a lot of things from, you know, cancer screening to eating more fiber to having a good social network. And I, I mean that in the old sense of the word, weighing less, drinking less, smoking less, controlling your blood pressure, cholesterol, and so on and so forth. So all these things are incredibly important, and I wouldn't want you to uh, minimize your efforts in any one category. But I, I want to know what comes first. What, what, what has the biggest impact? What has the biggest return on investment? What makes the biggest difference to your health? Evans poured over research to identify an intervention that would have the greatest impact on reversing these trends. He discovered a single activity that has the ability to have widespread effects on mitigating the number of diseases that have become lethal. This intervention has the ability to reduce progression of dementia and Alzheimer's by 50%. For people with diabetes and other lifestyle diseases, it reduces acceleration by 58%. This intervention is the number one treatment of fatigue and has been repeatedly proven to improve quality of life. Dr. Evans found that physical activity, in fact, just as little as 30 minutes of walking each day has widespread application to improving public health. So let's connect the dots here. If inactivity is literally killing us, and if trees somehow 
inspire activity, it follows that trees are fundamental to our health. And it follows that trees have a role to play in unlocking some of the most complex health issues of our time. But trees and access to nature are about more than inactivity. Of course, our physical health and our mental health are linked. But there is some inspiring research that takes this a step further. Dr. Richard Louvre, author of Last Child in the Woods, has coined the term nature deficit disorder. In essence, he argues that many of the challenges that children face today, like ADD and ADHD, are in some way linked to our growing disconnect from nature. The need for nature has accelerated as our lives have become more and more dependent on technology. Mentally, we crave nature because it engages senses that aren't stimulated when sitting in front of a TV or a computer screen. This research shows that when kids with attention deficit disorder play in green settings, they experience milder symptoms than those who play indoors. Ensuring that we plan and design our cities so that nature is easily accessible to the next generation will be critical to having happy and healthy children. How many of you have a favorite place in nature? When I was a kid, I lived in a house on a half-acre lot right on the outskirts of the city. Beside our house was a chestnut tree, a gorgeous, mature chestnut tree. Now, aside from the curiosity of the chestnuts themselves, this was a great tree to climb. It was the place I went to, my alone place. I created a little pulley system with a basket and some rope so that I could get snacks and books and other knickknacks to the very, very top of that tree. I would haul myself to the top of the tree and perch myself with my cookies or pop or whatever else I was able to scrounge from my mother's kitchen. Sometimes I took a book, sometimes an Archie comic. The funny thing is, I don't remember ever really spending a lot of time at the top of that tree. It was all about the planning, the climbing, the up and down, the search for the chestnuts that were soft enough to bust open. After reading Last Child in the Woods, I realized that my children, who are being raised in a much, much more urban environment, do not have the same access to nature in the city. My daughter is 15, and when she was born, blackberries were just taking off. By the time my son was born five years later, they were on the cusp of becoming the iPad generation. Hanging out in a tree with an Archie comic book isn't just quaint, it's almost archaic. In just one generation, we've transformed. The question is, what does this mean for the health of people living in cities? There's all kinds of emerging research that shows that people who live in cities with little access to green space have a higher incidence of psychological problems, anxiety, depression, other mental illness, than those who are able to visit or experience green space as a part of their daily lives. Amazingly, as a result of some research undertaken at Stanford University, we learned that people who strolled through green spaces were more attentive and happier than volunteers who strolled for the same amount of time near heavy traffic. But maybe we shouldn't be so amazed by this. It is the difference between relaxing and having to be aware. 
If there is lots of traffic around, it's critical to be hyper-attuned to the surrounding environment. On some of our streets, it's even a matter of life or death. What are the implications for this on our cities as we become increasingly urbanized societies? Really, as our cities become more dense and the types of housing that we live in transitions to more vertical living, parks and animated green space will become the backyards of urbanized societies. This is an important generational shift away from the way cities were once designed and utilized, particularly in the North American context. If cities do not take a proactive approach to not only protecting existing trees and green spaces, but also investing in new amenities, the long-term implications could be greater than we ever imagined. Let's listen to what Jeff Cape has to say about the importance of our ravine system as an example in the city of Toronto. My opinion, the green spaces in Toronto are uh, in many cases underutilized. I, I suppose the, the biggest piece of that puzzle is the ravine system, the 44,000 acre ravine system that reaches beyond the city of Toronto, uh, the borders of the city of Toronto, but it's, it's a massive asset, um, serves an incredibly important um, ecological function uh, supporting the river valleys and, and the stormwater management issues of the city. But, uh, but as a public space, it needs, uh, it needs some thinking. And it needs a little love. <laughs> There's also another dimension of green space that I think is really uniquely important, uh, and especially in a city like Toronto, um, where so much of the built landscape is imposed on us as citizens. Uh, I think one of the big opportunities for the ravine system and park settings in Toronto is to increasingly engage citizens in co-creating these spaces effectively creating a landscape where democracy can play out in day-to-day in -day interactions. Uh, if the city can find a way to engage the citizens in contributing to and evolving those landscapes by participating in their design and management, we might find a much healthier relationship, a much, much more dynamic and positive working relationship between the city and the citizens. It's democracy in action in many respects. Or it could be democracy in action if we chose to move that way. Jeff raises an interesting point with respect to how our thinking about cities is constantly evolving and the importance of the players who are impacted by the transformations that take place in our city need to be at the table. Historically, natural systems have been seen as liabilities in cities. Streams, rivers, and ravines have been either ignored, plowed over, or plowed under. As a result of rising water tables due to global warming, subdivisions the world over are faced with seasonal flooding. You know, the 100-year flood is now a regular occurrence, causing damage and mold and insurance havoc in homes meant for living. Maybe this is nature's revenge. We acted like natural systems didn't matter. And now, today, natural systems in our cities viewed as a liability, must be embraced as an opportunity. Hank Ovink is a water resilience planning expert based in the Netherlands. He argues that a 21st century approach to natural systems should involve absorbing water, designing for water, instead of trying to wall water off, instead of trying to simply keep water out this presents a metaphor, really, for natural systems uh, more broadly in our cities. 
How can we reconceive of nature in our everyday lives in the city? A 2015 study by the Vancouver Foundation ranked the city's growing sense of social isolation ahead of homelessness and poverty as the number one concern amongst residents. Vancouver is not alone in identifying social isolation as a growing challenge. Connecting with nature is about um, just taking a big breath of air and and uh, relaxing and um, enjoying the landscape. Uh, on the simplest level, that that may feel a bit trite, a bit uh, uh, secondary to you know the economics of a, of a of a big city like Toronto. But you know, look at New York City. Without Central Park, it would be it would be much less of a city. And Toronto similarly uh, has this amazing ravine system. Jeff raises a good point about Central Park and the importance it plays in the lifeblood of New York City. The more modern example, of course, is the High Line. The High Line was really intended to be a neighborhood amenity, but shockingly, it has become the number one tourist destination in New York City. Why? It clearly speaks to the value we place on reprieve and soulless, as well as gathering in dense urban places. Cities with different geographies, as well as sizes, are grappling with how to create a great sense of belonging and connectivity. Without places to gather, to connect, to build a community, these problems will deepen in modern-day cities. Recognizing that parks are more than civic frills, but really necessities to healthy and productive cities, we've begun to see a shift in the protection and prioritization of green space in our cities. If the 20th century was dedicated to the building of roads, highways, and single-tracked housing in the suburbs, the 21st century will be defined by the creation of thriving green spaces between the built environment. A recent $25 million donation to create a new public space under an existing expressway in the city of Toronto is a mark, a symbol of this shift of the beginning of a new era. As a broader new narrative about parks emerges, policymakers, decision makers, and the public have begun to think about parks as valuable contributors to larger urban policy objectives such as public health, economic development, and community building. Why would players of every political stripe spend evenings and Saturdays planning for trees? For a very simple reason. Trees are not frivolous, and they never have been. I'm Jennifer Kiesmat, and this is Invisible City. This episode was brought to you by TD Bank and Evergreen City Works. Invisible City is a product of Freeman House, a creative agency based in my beautiful city, Toronto. Each episode of Invisible City features an original score by Freeman House. This episode was written by me, Jennifer Kiesmat, and Jesse Darling. It was produced by Ryan Freeman. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as we enjoyed creating it. 
Ryan and I are aiming to release an episode on the first of each month. So, you know, subscribe so that you don't miss out. All of our episodes are on our website, invisiblecitypodcast.com. Thank you.